0: We'll be reading from Acts 17, verses 16 to 21. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand, and our front lines team will get you one. Yeah. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them, and some said, "What seems to be a preacher?" Oh, sorry. What seems? To, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, "He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus at the resurrection." And they took him and brought him to Arpegas, saying, "May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean." Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of God. Thank you,
1: Daniel. Well, hey, it's good to be back with you. Uh, We're friends on Facebook. I posted the other day that it's been nice to have a few weeks off from teaching responsibilities, but really excited to be back and such a joy actually to be be here back amongst church family again. Um, As you take time away, you really begin to love and appreciate what you have back home all the more and really excited about what God's doing here at Church of the City and how he's seeing fit to use us in this city of Guelph uh, to glorify and honor him and see other people in our city come to know Jesus and also pursue in Guelph as it is in heaven. And so all of us in some way or another, if whether we recognize it or not, are part of that if we call ourselves followers of Jesus bringing the kingdom here uh, welcoming people into kingdom realities and what the kingdom is is God's rule and reign and Jesus showed us what that looked like when he came to earth so if you're here for the very first time today if you are uh, not a follower of Jesus we want to introduce you to the Jesus way of life we want you to become a student of Jesus as we are all students of Jesus and why I say students is that none of us will ever make it there's always more and more and more that God wants for us. And unless you're going to become perfect, which is impossible, there is so much to go. Like there's so far to go in that relationship with Jesus. And so I just want to say as we start off here just really excited to be back with you and really excited to be following Jesus with all of you. I hope you feel like you're part of a family and that we're doing this together. If you in any way feel like you're alone then then, then, then either there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect some, somewhere in your life and we really don't want that to be the case and we really want to be doing this with one another because we are a church family in the fall, we'll be talking about what is the church? Like, what is this thing that we're doing here? Why are we even here in the midst of our post-Christian culture doing this? Like, why? So, good things to come. Well, I'm excited as in another way because the teaching this morning is probably one of my very favorite passages in the whole of the scriptures about how to engage our culture with the good news of Jesus, It's incredible, actually. There's a a topic that's called ethnography or ethnography, and it is the study of cultures. It's the study of societies, and greater than many other examples in Acts, although we've seen uh, Paul and the other apostles go to different cities to proclaim the gospel, what we have in this text is really very specific uh, examples given from Paul of how he engages a culture with the good news of Jesus. And it starts, as you're going to see, with what he sees, how he feels, and then he acts out of that. He sees things, he feels something, and then he go and he acts. And at the end of this, my hope is that all of us would be able to put on eyes, the eyes of Christ, to see our city in a different way, to, as a result, feel differently, and then as a result, speak differently to the cities, to the neighborhoods that we find ourselves in, all for the purpose that we would come to follow Jesus, desire his rule and reign in our lives as we engage. Now, a bit of background. Uh, We have been going through the story of Acts, and we're finding ourselves now in the middle of what is Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, A missionary is someone who goes to take good news, goes cross-culturally, and so this is the middle of Paul's second journey. I have a map uh, that we're going to put on the screen here. Uh, First map, actually. Uh, And this shows where Paul begins. He starts down uh, in Palestine. He goes on to Syria, then around to Cilicia, goes up into Galatia, to Lystra. You can see this red line that's taking him all around. And in the beginning of chapter 17, Paul finds himself in Thessalonica, which is up in Macedonia. Uh, So if you go to Apollonia, uh, just above that, or to the left, we see Thessalonica and then Berea. Uh, is the top left city that is being recognized there. And we read in the beginning of chapter 17 that Paul is in Thessalonica. We read that he goes to the Jewish synagogues there and he reasons with them for three Sabbath days, so three weeks. Uh, As he does this, he is met with in serious and very offensive opposition to the gospel, to the message of Jesus. He's preaching the resurrection of Jesus. The Jews are upset with him. And so based upon threats to his life, he and Silas go on to Berea. And so Berea is the city then to the left of Thessalonica. Paul in Berea he can't stop talking about Jesus goes to the synagogue continues to reason with others and then the Thessalonica or those in Thessalonica Thessalonians hear about Paul's now in Berea spreading this good news message not good news to them and so they get upset try to then squander what Paul is doing in Berea. Paul is not just, oh they disagree with me, shoot. It's actually a situation in which he is running for his life and so in the middle of the night he is sent away and he travels all the way down past, um, the names of these places are just unbelievable, but he goes down <laughs> to Athens which is just above uh, Achaia Uh, to the right there. He travels all the way down to Athens. And what he does in Athens is he's now in this city, and I'll explain what the city was like in just a moment. But essentially what he's doing here, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and meet him in Athens. So he's been on this incredible missionary journey. I mean, he is not driving around in a Hummer through these places, okay? He He is a lot of times by foot traveling, and this is quite a distance, right? You can see this is the Mediterranean Sea. You can look on a real map. This is a real map, by the way. This isn't a fake map. And you can look at this, and you see the distance he's traveling. This isn't a short distance, okay? This is essentially what I'm just trying to show you here. This actually happened. This is legit stuff. And he travels all this way, and he finds himself in Athens. Now, why I say all of that is that you'd think, after all of this traveling, sharing the gospel, and threats to your life, that if you have some time to yourself, you'd take it, right? Uh, Missionaries who go overseas and come back, they oftentimes talk about taking a furlough which for many missionaries ends up becoming just another aspect to their fundraising duties. They come back and they need to do uh, more fundraising. But this would have been a perfect time for Paul waiting for Silas and Timothy to take some time off. Right? He's in Athens. Uh, a little bit of detail about the city of Athens. Um, the city was the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. Before the rise of the Roman Empire, it was the leading political and cultural center of the Greek world. And then after it was conquered by Rome, Athens remained the center of learning for the whole empire. It boasted in itself of its rich philosophical tradition inherited from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, philosophers that we still study to this day, and of its literature and art and achievements in human liberty. So, you can think of, in North America or in our world, the intellectual capitals the places that people go to aspire. I think Boston, where people go to Harvard or other schools. These are the places where ideas are formed and function. You think of mass cities, think of Toronto, think of San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, Vancouver, cities that are extremely influential, that as things happen, as new ideas are chewed on, it then influences entire regions, influences a nation, and then has the impact to actually influence the world. This is Athens. Now, Paul, as I said, could be taking time, bit of a furlough, bit of a rest period. He's an intellectual person himself. He probably could have gone and just explored Athens on a little bit of a break, take it all in. But the experience of Paul, even with the threats against his life, with likely his tiredness, does not leave him to just rest. I'm sure there were periods of rest throughout it all, Because Paul is an evangelist. Paul cares deeply that the people in this part of the world would come to know the news of Jesus Christ, that they would become students of Jesus as he is a student of Jesus. So if you're someone who is inclined toward evangelism, what that means is just sharing the good news of Jesus with other people, you're going to read this text and be like, totally get it. For those of us that struggle with being evangelists, this is going to be very helpful to understand how we go about the business of evangelism. How do we see our culture through the eyes of God, and then how do we act out of that? So, Daniel read part of it for us earlier, but turn with me, if you haven't already gone there, to Acts 17, verse 16. Okay, so I've already given you the context. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, who's he waiting for? Silas and Timothy. While he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So the first question we want to answer is, what did Paul see? Well, fairly simply, what did Paul see? Paul saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. A Roman satirist, he actually said that it was more common to find gods in Athens than it was to find human beings. The city was immersed in a religiosity. It was immersed in idolatry. This is, the, this is what we're to understand from this text. They are submerged in a culture of idolatry. So much so that Paul recognized it. Paul sees it, right? Now, a couple of things as we we consider this for yourself and for myself. Athens, once again, is an intellectual capital. Ideas are processed there. New teachings are processed there. We here, currently, if you didn't already know, this is a building sitting on the University of Guelph. The university is a place where ideas are discovered, they're chewed on, some are spat out, some are continued. If we're to think about what is sort of the intellectual center of our city here, in many ways the University of Guelph would fit into that, where ideas are discussed and then in many ways influences cities and neighborhoods as students go to various places, as professors live in various parts of the city. This is one of those places. We then, if we're to go grander, we again live in Guelph, we live in southwestern Ontario, we have Toronto not far from us. We are in, what I would say, a place that has influence in the GTHA, growing into Guelph and the region, and then potentially through that, the nation. Have you ever stopped to ask the question, what are the idols of my city? Now, some of us might say, well, I have some friends that I work with or live on my street that are uh, of a different religion than me, and they have little idols that they admire and uh, go after. So that's that's one example of idolatry. But what are other idols? Uh, Some people discover or share. Tim Keller, one of them, says that an idol is anything in your life that is more important to you than God. It's something that you aspire to have approve of you. It's something that you find meaning in. It's something that motivates you. So put now, back to you after I've explained it, what are the idols that you see in our city? What are the things that motivate people? What are the things that people die to themselves for? So I want to get a bit of feedback. What do you think are some of the idols specifically of the city of Guelph? environmentalism, a a stewardship of the planet, which as many of us will understand, this is a very good thing, but it's when good things become ultimate things that there becomes an issue. So environmentalism, what's that? The mall, yeah, mall, people flocking to the Stone Road Mall to consume, trying to meet a need of comfort, consumerism, materialism, for sure. It's an, maybe an idle center in many ways. What are other things? Animals. Animals. Yeah. Yeah. So the veterinary sort of center. I'm told this is where you'd come for equestrian studies, horses, if you didn't know. Yeah. Real estate. Yeah. The, what are the number one places to buy real estate in North America? Yeah. Community. Yeah. This feeling of surrounding self, people. What else? Yeah. Social media, yeah? There was a recent article, I haven't read it yet, in The Atlantic. Have we lost the next generation because of their phones? Interesting. Yes, Liam. Video games, yeah, definitely. Now these things, as I've just said about environmentalism, in among themselves are not necessarily bad or evil. It's our relationship with the things that become the idols. What are some other things that are idols in our culture? Children. Yeah, I believe in the last census in Guelph, uh, this, one of the one of the first the first value was family, uh, in Guelph, and the second was actually recreation. Uh, very interesting of our city here. What else? Sex. Sexual liberation. Uh, we are actually. I just was listening to something this week um, that we are in the end of sex era. People nowadays are having less than they've ever had before, based upon what they can find online nowadays on their own? Human rights. Human rights. Yes, for sure. Now, some of you have maybe never asked the question before, and even if you don't follow Jesus, I think this is a, a good exercise for you too as well. What are the things that people care about around me? Right? Now, to see idols, you need to identify, one, that there are idols, and two, You need to be able to actually say that an idol is not necessarily a good thing. And part of that comes, if we're honest with ourselves, through growing in our relationships with Jesus. Because as we learn to love and to serve and to honor and to worship Jesus as the center of our lives, the other things that are lesser become less attractive, become less idolatrous in our lives. I would say one thing that wasn't mentioned was Netflix, consumerism. Um, I would say that probably 25% of my conversations are about television, movies, shows, these things. Now, this has been great, right? But the next question as we identify this, is not only what Paul saw, but then how Paul felt about what he saw. And it's also found in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What's the word that that we find there? Maybe your translation's a bit different. His spirit was provoked, distressed. What else? Deeply troubled. Now the Greek word, and not all of us need to study the Greek here, but the Greek word for what Paul felt, it's the Greek word paraximo. And it describes a deep mixture, and we're gonna come back to this later in the message, of both anger and sorrow and a continuous reaction. So it's a combination of anger and and sorrow in a continuous way. It's not solely just an immediate anger that then goes away. It's continuous. He's provoked. He's distressed. It's the same similar word that is used of God in his reaction to the idolatry of the Israelite people in Isaiah 62. So Paul, as he sees the idolatry, the idols, he's provoked to grief and indignation, just as God is grieved over the idolatry of of those in Athens as well. So here's my natural question. How does the idolatry of Guelph make you feel? How does the idolatry of what was ever just mentioned and people finding their meaning and purpose from these various things, how does it make you feel? Are you indifferent to it? Ah, oh, whatever. NBD. No big deal. LOL. <laughs> Crazy. Like, what, what does it do within you? Because for Paul, he was, he was perplexed. He was broken up about it. Why? Because he recognized in these people that what they were desiring and what they were looking for was nothing compared to the real thing. They were replacing worship of the creator for created things. And that bothered him. You see, Paul was in many ways so sensitive to what he saw because he himself was able to share God's attitudes based upon seeking the rule and reign of God in his own life. And as you begin to follow kingdom principles and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to pursue his rule and reign, you begin to realize how amazing that is. And so everything else bothers you. Because you say that you don't understand that that's nothing compared to a relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Those things are just fakes. And you're passionate for God's glory and not the things of man. So then what does Paul do? Verse 17 and 18. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So number one, uh, what we see here is that he reasons this with them, which means he does not simply declare, but he entered into an engaged give-and-take dialogue with people. He did not simply declare judgment and condemnation. (laughs) That's really, really important, okay? So when we talk about going and sharing the gospel, it's not just, hey, everybody, uh, one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge the earth and you've got to choose heaven or hell and we really hope you want to choose heaven because if you don't, you're going to hell. Okay, you can imagine on your street, that probably wouldn't go super well. He reasoned with people. He had conversations with people. In the first place, we see that he does this as he goes to the synagogue this is where the Jews and the god fears would be on the Sabbath. We then read that he goes to the marketplace. We read, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Jewish persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. He goes to the cultural centers. He goes to the marketplaces. He goes to Freshco. He goes to the splash pad in downtown Guelph. He goes to the pay- pay- places where people are doing their lives any reasons with them. He asks them questions. He says, what do you think is the meaning of this life? What are you doing here? What matters to you? What do you think are the things that matter to those that live in Guelph here? Now, here's the response of another group, and this becomes another group that he ends up reasoning with. Now, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him because they see what he's doing. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler, if we look in the original uh, Greek, he's talking about this one that's shooting off these new ideas that seem to be sidetracked from the real emphasis of what we should be focusing about. What's this babbler going on about? others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. But he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection, Luke tells us. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to therefore know what these things mean. So, interesting, okay? Let's go back a little bit. Paul could have been taking time on furlough. Instead, what does he do? He examines the city with the eyes of God. He then feels distressed and provoked. And so as a result, he speaks to the idolatry of the world that he sees around him. And he points them to the things that, the thing, Jesus Christ, that truly matters. This is really, really important. He studies his culture, he sees his culture, and then he speaks to his culture, having a lens of what his culture values. For me, I kind of think about it in my own life as I'm trying to find the good news stories of the people that live around me, So for some people here in Guelph, as we've talked about, it it might be that I, I make a good amount of money, I own lots of rental properties, I eventually sell them for a bunch of money, and then I live the comfortable life. That would be the good news for some people. The good news would be I get a better job. The good news would be I get smarter, I get another PhD, I write another paper. That is, for many people, their good news stories. For followers of Jesus, our good news story is different. That Jesus gives us hope, meaning, purpose, identity, and that he will one day return and his rule and reign will cover the cosmos. The death, pain, dying, brokenness will no longer have a heyday. That that will be done when he returns. And not only will that be the reality then, but it also can be a reality now as we pursue Jesus in our lives. So often the way that I engage people in conversation is I try to poke holes in their good news bubbles. Now, what do I mean by that? I figure out what's good news to them, and I show them how it's not really that great. And they'd be like, well, that's kind of mean. Well, how else are we going to share a better good news story with them unless they see the holes in their own good news story? So some of you have heard this story before, but I was texting with uh, someone at one point, and she, she was expressing how overwhelmed she was with her life, and she said, if only I had a husband. And I said back to her, because what was her good news in that moment? A husband. I said, yeah, but then you'd have husband problems. (laughs) And she would. Right? The only one that can help you in the midst of what she was dealing with is is Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. But unless she heard that that was the better news, the good news, she wouldn't get beyond the good news of the husband. Right? Right? We identify, this is doing ethnographic research, we identify what matters in our society and in our culture. And then what we do is we do our best in our own lives by the working of the Holy Spirit in us to also not become controlled by the idols around us. Because if you are controlled by the idols around you, you're not going to be able to see them with the eyes of God. Because you're so wrapped up in it yourself. A good illustration of this is that if you drive into any big city in the middle of the summer, you oftentimes see over the downtown the smog, right? You're like, whoa, crazy impact of the city in our environment. And then you get down there and you look up in downtown and guess what? You don't see it. You suddenly have a seared conscience, it's what it's called. You can't see the haze. You can't see the smoke, All you see is the sky. And for many of us, if we're honest, we are so wrapped up in the idols of our own culture that we fail to see their control over our lives. Something to think about. Paul is then invited, based upon what he is sharing, to go to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is also known as Mars Hill. At one point, it is where all of these judicial hearings would happen, but once Rome took over, it instead becomes a council for hearing new ideas. So, in many ways, imagine it this way, that this is the council that if you wanted to bring a new religion to a city, you need to go to them and present it, and then hopefully they approved of it so that you and then could go and talk about it with others. So, they were the doorway or the gatekeepers to culture, the culture of Athens. And what is Paul? Paul's invited. Come to the show. As we're going through, I kind of think about it as like a TED talk. Right? People listen to TED talks, all these new ideas, ideas worth sharing. And and they're going to kind of going through. And what it tells us is that these people would listen to all these new ideas. It was kind of their continuous routine. And so Paul is invited to give a TED Talk based upon the reasoning that he's doing in the culture. And he goes and he gives his TED Talk, right? And what does he say at his TED Talk? Well, he covers a few things. He, number one, in verses 24, talks about God being the creator of the universe, now, Paul is invited by Stoic philosophers and Epicurean philosophers. Now, to give you a little bit of a background on what a Stoic is and what an Epicurean is, Epicureans, Epicureanism was formed by Epicurus, who's an ancient philosopher, and they were called the philosophers of the garden. And they considered the gods to have no interest or influence on human affairs. They essentially said, if the gods are out there, they don't care about your daily life. Just pursue pleasure pursue happiness, do your thing. Which, if you think about it, Epicureanism has mass influence on our culture today. Right? Then we have the Stoics. They were called the philosophers of the porch. They acknowledged the supreme God, but in a pantheistic way. So they saw that there are many gods out there, there is a God element to our world, but there's many of them. They said that the world is determined by fate and humans must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason and develop their own self-sufficiency. Therefore, pursue submission to the gods and endurance to pain and empathize fatalism. They would emphasize fatalism. So, These are the two ways of things. So Paul, as we go through what he says to them, he's addressing directly the Stoics and the Epicureans and their belief system. So what does he say? Number one, God is the creator of the universe. I'm sorry, Epicureans, but there is a personal God out there who created the universe. God is involved. And he then says to the rest of the Stoics who have a pantheistic or multiple God approach, he says, there's one creator God. Then in verse twenty-five, God is the sustainer of life; He is the one that sustains you. You do not sustain yourself. Third point: God is the ruler of all the nations. In verse twenty-six to twenty-eight, He then says, "God, God is the father of human beings." In verse twenty-eight b and twenty-nine, Paul actually quotes a Stoic philosopher. What's he doing? He's contextualizing the gospel based on based upon a thought of the day. He's acknowledging this revelation in that particular philosopher's life, but pointing that revelation to its source, which is God. And then fifthly, he says, God is the judge of the world. And he essentially says, human ignorance is no longer any excuse because one, God will judge the world and he's gonna judge everyone. God's judgment will be righteous. He defines what is right and what is wrong. And God's judgment is definite, meaning it definitely is going to happen. And then he lands, where he lands his little message in the TED Talk is just as the definite plan of God the Father, just as it was definite that there will be a judgment, it's as definite that Jesus came back to life and that he was dead physically and came back to life, the resurrection of the dead. Now, some people have expressed some frustration with it because he doesn't seem like he really points to the cross very much. But here's what Paul is doing. He's laying a groundwork for the foundation that is Christianity. He's trying to help them get a full picture of what the Christian view of the, of life and the world is. He's not just pointing directly to what we would sort of say is the one sort of gospel two-liner of what it is. He's giving them a Christian view of the world. Now, the response Verse 32 to 34, the mention of the resurrection creates an immediate response. Number one, some are shocked. They actually burst out laughing. Likely the Epicureans who are like, the gods don't care. Right, you babbler. Some ask to hear more, perhaps the Stoics. We believe in a spiritual reality. We'd like to hear more about your spiritual reality. Paul actually says in this text, we read that he goes about and he actually finds one altar that is made to the unknown God. So they were so immersed in so many idols that they actually made one altar in case they would miss one. And Paul says, what you declare as unknown, I declare as known. This is the good news altar. Everything else he pokes holes in. And then third, some actually join and believe. So let's just get mathematical for a second okay and this isn't going to be perfect math three groups identified of how they respond we mentioned a few at the end even if you were to take percentages if there's not that many people gathered here 33% success rate okay if we were to just kind of be mathematical it's it's likely even less what does that tell us you're going to share the gospel and people aren't going to listen to you it's guaranteed I remember hearing somebody talk about when Jesus is talking about spreading the seed, if you've maybe heard that parable before, and only one, <laughs> those, the seed that falls upon the good soil actually grows. It's like 25% success rate if we use that parable. Now, this isn't to discourage you. It's to simply help us understand that there will be people that will not hear. But guess what, too? There will be people that will. You know, we just got back from a week with 47 campers and there were some kids that were immediately ready to hear the gospel. There were others. One girl said at one point, I'm okay going to hell. Like, Whoa. But let's be honest. There's, there, that is our culture. Right? If there is one, what, what's the big deal? Right? But there are some that were open and then there's some that are like, we'd like to hear more. That's exactly what we find here. So, to wrap this all up, what do we learn? I've had three weeks off, so I can't keep us here till one, but what do we learn? Well, one, I would say we learn a, a little bit about the gospel itself. And what I mean by that is that if you are here and you've never heard the good news of Jesus before, may you hear it, hopefully, maybe for the first time. The, the God created World. He brought order out of chaos. He created you beautiful. He created things in the most creative way. Like as I look at the universe more and more, as I get to see more and more of it, it is amazing. That's a personal being behind it. And this God desired that human beings would be in relationship, but He gave human beings the capacity to choose. And so what they did was they chose to rebel against God. And ever since that immediate rebellion, we have been caught up in a rebellion against God. Now God at that point could have said, well, you know what, I'm going to back off of you because, well, I gave you the first shot. But God is a loving God. God is a missionary God who pursues his people and said, you can't save yourself, so I'm going to save you, and I'm going to send my son, God himself, to come to the earth to redeem and restore that which is broken. He's going to show you what it means to live in light of the kingdom, and then he's going to die taking the consequence and penalty of all of your bad rebellion and sin. He's then going to come back to life three days later. And then after 40 days, he's going to come back to me and we're going to prepare a place for you. And when we return, no more pain, no more crying, no more brokenness, no more sin. But the life you get to live now is one of purpose and meaning, sharing with the world around you what it means to live in light of kingdom values and principles under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So that is, that is the gospel. Now, I could have done that in maybe a couple of sentences. But what I did there was I gave us a fuller perspective of gospel understanding, start to finish. And, and hear me, as Paul understood of the culture he was speaking to here, he knew that he could just not use the two, one or two liner. He needed to give them a foundation for why Christians believe what they do. And I believe we are living at a time in our culture where people need more than the one or two-liner. They want to hear why we believe the things that we do. They want to know that we aren't living simply by blind faith. They want to know that we've thought through creation. They want to know that we've thought through sexuality. They want to know that we've thought through pain and brokenness. They want to know that we've thought through judgmentalism. They want us to think through the facts that the church has, by and large, in many places, been a really, really bad place to be. And they want to have some answers to those questions. And they want to know how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, impacts our day-to-day lives. So, here's another side of it, though. Paul felt that that gospel message was applicable to those that were in the church, the synagogue, the God-fears. So what that tells us is that if you're in here and you follow Jesus, you need to hear this message just as much as the other two groups. You need to be reminded about how much God loves. You need to be reminded that idolatry is lesser than what you've been given. But then there's the other group, the marketplaces, that you could say sort of the, the common everyday folks in our culture. The middle and lower class, if we're at a class, well, the class system there. That every, he even goes to them and says, you need to hear the good news of Jesus. And then the third group, the intellectuals. And we live in a culture in which intellectuals are by and large saying, faith is old. is old, It's dying. But here, Paul says, no. Every group needs the gospel. So here's the question of those of you that are not followers of Jesus. If you've never heard the gospel before, one, walk with us, and could you for a second believe that the gospel could apply to your life? And then if you're a follower of Jesus here, what are the groups of the three that I just described that you said there's no way they're going to be reached with the gospel? Because Paul believed that it could and he had, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he saw fruit or results of the gospel going forth into these different groups. So a fuller understanding, a fuller gospel. So for those of us that follow Jesus, that means we got to do a bit of research. A part of that is through getting more engaged in the scriptures And also doing some other study. But then secondly, what do we learn? I I think we learn a little bit about the motivation for the gospel. And it's based upon a couple of things. And what I mean by that motivation of the gospel, this is probably speaking more to those of us in this room that do call ourselves followers of Jesus, would say that our lives are under the rule and reign of the King Jesus. But what is your motivation to actually share the gospel with people? And in the text, based upon Paul being distressed, we see two things at play. One, we see an outrage because of God's holiness, and two, we see compassion because of the love of God. Other words we can maybe put forward is a truth and a grace. One, he looked at his culture, and he saw that it was broken. And he saw that they were exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and it made him angry because God is holy, and God is perfect, and only God can give you what you're desiring. So it made him angry. If you've ever done any study in the Enneagram, thank you to Liv for introducing me in a very powerful way to it. I'm a type one. Type ones are perfectionists. We are social reformers. We, we can be very great at leading the charge in a new way of saying, this is the way to go. Oftentimes type ones have a fairly good understanding of what is right and wrong. But the problem with type ones is that if you don't fall in line with the type ones version, I can become very angry and resentful to you because you don't fall in line with what I want. So, in some ways, you could say that in, from a Christian perspective, and as a pastor, how I need to be careful, but then is also probably things that make me strong, is that I can identify with the, maybe the things very quickly that makes God angry. I can say, the holiness of God, we got to get back to it. What are we doing? But what happens is that I struggle on the other end with the compassionate love of God. To say there's, there's, there's grace. To say that the way the message comes is in a way of love, in death by Christ, in death now of self. But here's the thing, okay? Paul showed us both. Because he followed someone that showed him both. Jesus Christ. Because Jesus comes and shows us the righteous anger for the holiness and perfection of the Father and recognizing that this world is broken and it needs to be restored. It's it's not like he came and was like, oh, whatever, you know, no big deal. He came because it was such a big deal. Our sin was such a big deal that Jesus needed to leave the perfect presence of the Father and come to this earth. Because God is holy and the only way back to him is through Jesus. But then at the same time, he he doesn't do it in a way of saying, you go to the cross. What does he do? He says, I'll go to the cross for you. I'll take the weight of your sin. I'll take the weight of the discipline. If we, in our culture, as we engage, if we take the perspective of only anger, we'll be constantly frustrated, judgmental, and self-righteous towards the world we live in. We'll separate ourselves from it because we won't want to, well, I don't want to get my morals mixed up, and I'm better than you. If you only take the side of compassion, you undermine the reality that we live in an idolatrous culture, That is pursuing things that are not of God and are, in many ways, putting the nail in their own coffin. It also is a bad sort of perspective of what grace is because grace acknowledges the brokenness and anger, yet says, I'm gonna take it on myself. So as we respond to the gospel this morning, the good news of Jesus, what he has done to redeem and restore all that is broken and will one day come back to complete, we're in the already and not yet time. The question I would ask of you, if, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus, you do say that you live under the lordship and kingship of Jesus, is which, which response do you lean to? And how in reviewing what the gospel is, God's anger, but God's compassion and grace in solving it, how can you be moved by that so that then you move and are motivated by that too as you engage the world around you? And then if you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome to the table. Welcome to this place where we're working all of this out too under the teachings and the lordship of Jesus. And and here... What Paul says here is that there is so much available to us now that you can't be ignorant. There's so much available now. You cannot be ignorant. Judgment is coming. But the love of God is there, and it's the best. This is what John Stott writes for us in his commentary on this text. We do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, and he spoke. It all began with his eyes. When Paul walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols. The Greek verb used three times is either therio or anatherio and means to consider. So he looked and he looked and he thought and he thought until the fire's were kindled within. Love that. If you are struggling in this thing called life, if you are struggling to have the fire (laughs) burned beneath you of, I need to get off of my butt. I need to see my culture differently. I need to see my neighborhood differently. I need to see it. Then come forward and be prayed for. Admit your neediness. Admit you need the Holy Spirit to convict you because if the Spirit's going to convict other people, he's got to begin with you so that your eyes would change, so that you would see things differently. And when your eyes are changed, you will also begin living differently because you'll see how good Jesus is and how fake everything else is. So come forward for prayer. If you are someone, you've never submitted your life under the rule and reign of Jesus, wanting his kingdom here, now, then come forward. We'd love to pray for you, welcome you into the family. And if you are someone today and you are feeling a physical ailment in your body, would you come forward and would, we be, would you allow us just to pray that God would heal you? Or maybe you're sensing the Spirit tell you something about our culture, about our church community that needs to be shared. And you can come to myself or James in the front here and we can discern with you whether or not we should share it with the larger group. But let's be open and let's respond to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in this time together. As followers of Jesus, I hope you realize that much of this comes from seeing the world around us differently because we now operate with a different set of principles. And it allows us to respond motivated in a different way, both with a, an anger because of God's holiness and a compassion because of his incredible love. Love. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are with us. You are inside of us, those who call ourselves apprentices to Jesus, followers of the King, or as some would call us, Christians. I pray, Jesus, that you would open our eyes. May we see the world as you saw it. But then, Jesus Father, Holy Spirit, you you saw it and you didn't resort to inaction or leaving us to our own devices. You then came to this earth pursuing us, living a life we could not live and dying a death that we should all die so that we can be declared righteous and perfect. And so this morning, God, I, I pray that you would give us your eyes and that then we would see what you see and then act. That we would be provoked. God, if we have not been provoked in a while, would you provoke us? May you distress us. May we see the brokenness and may we desire by your spirit to act, to do something about it, to reason in synagogues, in marketplaces, and in intellectual centers. I thank you, Jesus, for saving me out of my hypocrisy, out of my self-righteousness out of my judgmentalism. And I thank you that you walk this with me and that you're in the business, Holy Spirit, of sanctifying me. And so, Lord, may it start with us. God, we need you. And God, we need the encouragement of one another. So may we be encouraged this morning and may we go change people. In your name, amen.